This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. As per usual, midweek, Ernie Eves, a former Premier of Ontario and former finance minister in the House. How's Ernie? I'm great, John. I'm still recovering from the Leaf game Monday night. <laughs> oh, oh, are you? You're going <laughs> to be days later. full-time recovery for the rest of the season. Let me talk about that here shortly, but introducing other members of the panel, John Turley-Ewart, risk management consultant specializing in capital markets, extensive experience on Bay and Wall Streets. How's John? Very well, thank you. Thank you for coming in. And Dan Moulton, too, Vice President, Government Relations at Crestview Strategy, uh, a liberal strategist and media commentator. How's Dan? I'm doing well, John. Glad to be here, you know, as Glad usual to... with a uh, esteemed company like these two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, he's excluded me in that company, by the way. <laughs> I, oh, I definitely. Yeah, that. no, definitely. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I'm made of sterner stuff. <laughs> hey, Ernie, just out of curiosity, very quickly, because uh, last hour I had Vic Fideli on, Minister of Trade and Job Creation. He's going with Doug Ford, the Premier, to uh, Washington Friday through the weekend, uh, to sort of bang the drum for trade and so on and so on. You've been on these junkets. Anything of consequence come from them? Yes, there there are some good things that come out of them. I believe it's always important to meet people firsthand, face-to-face, and have a discussion with them. Uh, quite often, of course, the homework has been done before the people go. Uh, often you're just signing something that's already really been negotiated or almost totally negotiated. But I, I do think it's important to do such things. Yes, I've spoken at luncheons and dinners, and I think it's important to let our American neighbors know that uh, we're open for business. There are opportunities in Ontario, and uh, we'd be happy to have them. They'd probably be happy to welcome you there. I mean, uh, nobody's sure anymore who's a friend, who's a foe. <laughs> it's a pretty toxic environment. Uh, and so on that note, let me ask you first, John, uh, did you see the State of the Union address last night? Uh, I did watch some of it. Uh, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh getting uh, the, the, <laughs> the the presidential medal for freedom and his wife sitting beside him. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but it was like a reality show. A lot of people have commented on that today. Yeah, is that somehow uh, lowering, I don't know, uh, the decorum when it comes well, to these kinds of things? I, th- I think, I, you know, having spent a lot of time, you know, studying history and particularly American history, I mean, the reverence that you would have for, for the office of the speaker, for the president, all that's gone. And it just seems very debased uh, right now. And and I'm hoping someday, uh, you know, it gets back to a level where people have respectful disagreements uh, and, and treat each other as they should treat each other, as people who are Americans but have maybe differences in, in public policy. But that's not where we are right now. Well, and that's the curiosity to me. Like, uh, where'd this all start to unravel? Was it Trump? Is he ground zero or this debasement or corrosive uh, quality to the, the discourse, the public discourse, Dan? Uh, well, you know, I'd say, I, I'd say that no, no modern president behaves and speaks the way he does in the kind of settings that you expect the grand presidency to perform in, right? Certainly uh, the State of the Union is a great example of, you know, e- even, you know, presidents that were politically divisive uh, didn't, you know, chide the opposition and attack the other side and pr- provoke in the way that he did last night. I mean, I agree the, the, the presenting literally during the State of the Union of the Presidential Medal of Freedom to the bigot uh, that Rush Limbaugh is, is, is not only disappointing, it's just this strange gesture that like... Well, how's he a know, bigot? Just out of curiosity, I want to know how you define that term. 
Well, I, I think we could start with him being the one that originated and advanced the theory that Barack Obama wasn't born as a U.S. citizen, which oh, is a deliberately yes, it wow. was a deliberately racist exercise that, of course, uh, President Trump uh, participated in as a private citizen at the time. Uh, so, you know, that's just the start of the example. The guy has a library of examples of the way he talks about immigrants and people with disabilities and people with different sexual orientations over the years, and and so uh, to do that exercise of putting the medal on him at the State of the Union, uh, it was you know it was deliberate provocation. Uh, it was a deliberate sort of a- effort to demonstrate that he's a different kind of president. But you're right, John, it sounded like rea- or it felt like reality show television. Same with throwing out that scholarship when he gave that little girl the scholarship. I mean, sure, I'm sure she deserves a scholarship. That's great. But to announce it like a game show host at the dais of the of the House Capitol. Uh, I don't know. All right. So all the histrionics. We, just you know, didn't, we needed marching bands and popcorn. Yeah. Well, are you, you're saying, no, it's going down market. Uh, or is this somehow hate to say it, but uh, the brilliance of the stagecraft because they recognize that so much of politics overlaps with entertainment Well, it, it, it was a great campaign speech, which is what it was. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as, quote, what we would traditionally think of as a State of the Union no. address. It was basically, he was telling everybody what a great job he thought he'd done for the last three years and what a great state the U.S. economy is in. He's done everything better than any president in history, and he deserves to be reelected. That's what it was all about. Mm-hmm. But I, I suppose if you put it in the in you know the wider context of of you know the past several elections, globalism, Clinton, um, and you know the the decline of of American working class and the Rust Belt in the United States, and Trump representing the fury of I would say Democrats, you're supposed to represent working people, uh, not representing them. Uh, you know. You know, if you look at it in that context, you know, Trump is there to, you know, basically throw a Molotov cocktail at all the elites in, in, in Washington, and he's doing it. There's, you know, a book called, um, I believe it's called uh, uh, Hillbilly Eulogy. Elegy. Yeah. Elegy. And it's, yeah. uh, it's uh, a tremendous book. It is. And it's something that if you want to understand Trump, you need to read that book. I agree. Uh, and, and so this, you know, if you look at last night in the context of that, Democrats, I think, need to say to themselves, how did we get to this place where so many people who voted for Barack Obama voted for Trump? And how can we get out of it? And I don't think they're asking that question. Well, uh, all right. So and, you know, this... that was top of mind in Iowa, to be fair. Right. Sorry, John, to interrupt you. But I think you look at the results in Iowa and you look at the, the campaign that was waged there. I think there is a conversation in the Democratic Party. Right now, it looks like that conversation is emerging between Mayor Pete and, and Bernie as to who of those two individuals can most effectively speak to the broadest coalition of voters. And certainly the, the hurt and, and suffering a lot of people are feeling in those northeastern states that you reference. Well, I'm not persuaded. I think they were talking about how to make the app work uh, and vote. That's what they were actually talking about. <laughs> well, sure. If you want to be cheap about it, that's fine. But I think the I think the real debate that was happening there was, you know, is someone like Pete Buttigieg who has assembled a coalition of a, a broad range of voters of, of lots of different backgrounds to come out and support him, or Bernie, who I, I think does effectively speak to the emotional context of those Rust Belt states that you referenced in the way that Trump did. And so I, I think the, the debate about which of those two individuals uh, most effectively will be able to do that job is happening in the Democratic Party. But here's the thing, because uh, Bernie does represent, to John's point, something that uh, Trump obviously represented and everybody sort of mm-hmm. missed it. Uh, they were focused elsewhere. They're grand disruptors and yep. they're anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on that particular polarity, uh, Bernie is a, a risk to the Democrat establishment. 
Well, certainly. I think he represents a, a very similar force in the party that Trump did in that he is someone who isn't traditionally a member of that party. He was an independent senator for all those years. And while he's been a progressive, he's never been a Democrat. Same with Trump. He was never a Republican. Good God, he donated mm. millions of dollars to the Democratic Party. He was a Democrat in New York. But these guys are getting elected to lead these parties and remaking them in their own image. And I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, across the Western world, uh, leaders that are charismatic, speak to an emotional response in people and are able to, because of the weakness of some traditional political institutions, uh, warp them into their own image and, and sort of turn them into something a bit different. Right. Which is but, certainly, but the, the, I mean, that's happened with the Republicans. Look at today in the Senate. That That is a, that is the example of it. Mitt Romney, the only one with any integrity. But the, the challenge for the Democrats, so if they, if they go with Bernie Sanders, is Americans are not socialists and he's a socialist. And I think one of the reasons you saw the Clinton, when, when Hillary became the leader in, in the last election, what, why they worked so hard not to have Bernie Sanders as a leader, and practically I could say stole the, the, the leadership from him, is that you know they, they were trying to protect the party as, as an integral unit. And I think if you have a, a socialist leader leading the Democratic Party, you're going to see that party broken in half because there are you know, millions and millions of Democrats who cannot support socialism. And, and that's the piece that the, the Democrats haven't resolved, is how do you reach middle America? How do you reach the 200-something million people who are happy with their health care, who don't want socialized medicine? And, you know, I don't think they have an answer to that. Well, all right. But there is an allure to, and a seductive allure to, Bernie Sanders. And uh, unless they find a way of, you know, knocking... But, 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 but the thing is, who is he the allure to? Is he the allure to the, the college campus types? Uh, who, you know, uh, you know, will get out and cheer and, and do, you know, some volunteer work. That's all great, but the, they're not going to win the election for, for the Democrats. Well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a demonstrated movement behind him that isn't just, you know, college liberals, as you would probably try and deride them as. Certainly young people across the political spectrum are excited about his candidacy. Latinos throughout the United States are big fans of his. There's a lot of documentation from the New York Times on that recently. I mean, he, he does have a, a sizable uh, coalition behind him. It, you're right. Is it broad enough to beat Trump? I don't know. Trump's is pretty narrow, though, right? Trump's, Trump's coalition is pretty narrow. And so if he can speak to uh, an anger and resentment that, that is out there, not just at Trump, but at the American political establishment. Uh, that's the one edge I think Bernie does have over uh, the Hillary candidacy of the last election. See, I, I, I think that you're, you're going to have Democrats sit at home who are not socialists, who can't abide, you know, socialized medicine and what Bernie's talking about. You know, they won't vote for Trump. I just think they won't vote. But uh, Buttigieg might be able to cross yeah. that, cross yeah. that divide. Well, he's demonstrated well, Whereas I don't think that Bernie can. I mean, I'm just watching a little bit. I watched last night. Uh, Bernie got overwhelming majority of young voters, but Buttigieg got the overwhelming majority of voters between 45 and 65. Yep. So-called middle-aged. Well, where's Biden in all of this? Professional people. <laughs> Biden's Dead in danger of well, I mean, crashing and burning. I think. Yeah, he is. I mean, that that seems to be the case. The other the other question we have to ask is how's how representative is Iowa really? Well, that's a good I, point. I, you know, its demographics are not reflective of of the United States. Well, Bloomberg's <laughs> no. sitting it out till oh, Super Tuesday. I mean, that's forty one delegates you get in Iowa. New Hampshire's uh, a pittance as well, and then you get three hundred and sixty or something in California alone on Super Tuesday. So Bloomberg's taking the Hail Mary shot. I actually think he's a guy who won coming out of this because he's doubling his spending and. He's seeing a fractured Democratic Party uh, bring forward uh, at least one candidate, Bernie Sanders, who's probably not viable in the national stage at, at the end of it. So he's got a shot. Well, he spent uh, $200 million to this point. He's doubled that uh, now to $400 million. Mm -hmm. That's just to sort of ante up to get in. 
So money is obviously going to be the determinant here, no? Well, is that not always the way yeah. it is? Yeah, well, that's where American <laughs> politics has gone. I, I guess I'm kind of curious because, you know, the uh, it's about timing as much as anything, too, and uh, what the mood is, the sentiment, the zeitgeist, I guess they call it. We saw that, too, with Doug Ford. I mean, it was just a repudiation as much as anything of Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals uh, that took him to the top, over the top, with a majority, would you say, Ernie? Well, it certainly helped. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, Hillary, going back to the last... <laughs> I mentioned Doug last Ford. go round. <laughs> you know, Hillary, she represented, I think, everything that Americans disliked about their system of government. Uh, Democrats, in my opinion, couldn't have chosen a worse candidate to run against Trump than Hillary. She might have been the only candidate that gave Trump a chance to actually win, and he did. I mean, give him credit. He worked his tail off in those swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and to a lesser extent, Ohio. And without those, he doesn't become president of the United States. And he won those states by handful of votes. Yeah, but that's a bit misleading. This is where I actually agree with, uh, disagree with, with John, that, it, that is. Uh, Democrats aren't going to stay home again this election. They stayed home in the last election. Uh, Donald Trump, there's a, a massive myth that he won these Rust Belt states by some great majority. He got less votes in most of the Rust Belt states than Mitt Romney did in 2012. Yeah, I agree. Also didn't win any of those states, right? I agree. And so I, I think there is a bit of a myth because a lot of African-American voters and a lot of Democrat voters didn't show up to vote because they thought Hillary was going to win. Let's remember, it, it's easy to forget that on Election Day in 2016... Hillary thought she was going to win. She didn't everyone, bother going You thought she was going to win. Everybody thought she was going to win. There wasn't a single poll. There wasn't a single uh, commentator out there that was suggesting Donald Trump would win that night. Everybody stayed home. No one's staying home this election. And if he wins again, uh, what happens then? I mean, are we facing the apocalypse end times? Democrats or? are going to crash and burn. <laughs> well, <laughs> if they haven't already he crashed, he might win again, burn. right? Like he may. Uh, his his well, look, his his approval rating right now is at forty eight percent, forty nine percent. It's 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 quite high. Um, and you know, the economy is chugging along in the U.S. fairly well. Stock market was up five hundred points today. Uh, and if we're talking about money buying elections. Uh, he's got money on his side. And, um, you know, I just don't see if Bernie Sanders is, 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 is coming forward. I mean, you talk about people being inspired to go after Trump. If Bernie Sanders is, is the alternative to Trump, you're going to see a lot of people on Wall Street and, you know, Florida and all these places where there's large sums of money uh, being motivated to go to the polls. But if it's Bloomberg... And see, that's that's where I think it'd be an interesting question. Uh, yeah, but I think in the same light as Ernie talks about Hillary being a representative of everything voters didn't like about their American political system, I think Bloomberg represents a lot of the same things, right? I mean, do we really need two super old billionaires running against each other no, for the presidency? No, right? I, it just, it no, just no, works. Air, I, 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 I disagree <laughs> with you on that because Bloomberg doesn't have the, the legacy that, that Hillary Clinton has. He just doesn't. I mean, he was a mayor of New York City. Uh, in part, was you know had a very successful mayorship there. Helped clean clean up that that city in terms of crime to some extent or a large extent. Uh, he's got uh, you know he's worked with activist groups. He's worked with the hard left. He was he was a very good mayor of New York, I think. So I, I think that uh, bodes well for him compared to Hillary Clinton. He's, but he's not a, a font of charisma. Let's be real here, right? Like he's yeah. But he, who wants charisma after Trump? What you want is someone <laughs> who can like you know, can, can we get back to work? Can we get things going the way they're supposed to work? Can yeah. we do things properly? Yeah, it's a bit like John Tory here. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 